We'll hear argument next to number 987540, Scott Leslie Carmel versus Texas. Mr. Bernstein. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. The respondent effectively asked this Court to uphold for the first time in its history a retroactive change in the substantive criminal law. And both Collins, 497 U.S. at 45, and Miller, 482 U.S. at 433 and 434, indicate that the Court has never and should never approve a retroactive change in the criminal law. Well, why do you call this a change in the substantive law, Mr. Bernstein, rather than a change in the evidentiary rules? Well, I think both precedent and history indicate that it's a change in the substantive law. The statute itself, which appears at page 2 of our brief, is a statute about, quote, about when, quote, a conviction is supportable, close quote. So it is clearly by its own terms a sufficiency of the evidence statute and not a mere evidentiary rule. Um, K.M. was capable of testifying before the change in the statute and after the change in the statute. The question was whether her testimony um, was sufficient uh, by itself. There's perhaps no more. Well, it, it was sort of a witness competency statute, wasn't it? I, I don't. I mean, that's what it's dealing with. The witness was a witness before and after, but would Texas allow that witness to be a competent witness? I don't believe so, Your Honor. I don't believe there was any more a witness competency change than the change in Fenwick's case, which is what Calder's fourth category referred to. Well, I thought it was pretty close to Hopped, where, where convicted felons were originally not considered competent to testify, and then there was a change, and they were. Well, and someone would have been convicted uh, after the change, but not before, if well, that's the only witness. Well, um, as Hopped makes c- clear, it four times distinguishes changes in sufficiency of the evidence mm-hmm. from changes in evidentiary rules. All that was changed in Hopped was an evidentiary rule. Who could testify? Well, it was witness on- competency issue, wasn't it? Yes, Hopped was, and this is not. In Texas, a five-year-old can testify and is sufficient by themselves under the old statute as well as under the new statute. One would not suggest that a 14-year-old is less competent than a five-year-old. The rule goes to sufficiency of the evidence every bit as much as the rule of two witnesses for treason in Fenwick's case. Well, but the statute, the Texas statute, talks about the testimony being corroborated or not. That's correct. Which is exactly what the, uh, some of the other witness competency statutes talk about. I, I don't believe so. I believe the witness competency cases went to whether the person could testify at all, not whether um, the testimony uh, had to be corroborated. Well, take, take the traditional common law rule that you can't convict someone uh, uh, on their own confession without some corroboration. Now, would you call that an evidentiary rule or, or what you call a I would sub- call that uh, a sufficiency of the evidence rule. And, and, in fact, in one of the footnotes, uh, we cite a lower court case which reversed, based on Calder's fourth category, that kind of situation. You spoke of the comparability of this to Fenwick. Um, wasn't the, uh, the prior rule in Fenwick, which was, in effect, dispensed with, the rule that there had to be two witnesses to the Treasonous Act? Yes. And that, it seems to me, is not the kind of rule that we have here, because as I read the, the prior Texas statute, it didn't require a second witness to the sexual act. It simply required corroboration. And that corroboration, for example, might be the testimony of a, of a doctor who would examine the victim afterwards and, and so on. So if, if, the, if your argument is that this is like, the change here is like the change uh, in the Fenwick situation, that seems wrong to me. Would you, could you comment on that? Sure. Um, the rule stated in Calder's fourth category is broader than simply a change from a two-witness rule to a one-witness rule. It is a change in any sufficiency of the evidence rule so that less evidence is It is certainly written broader. There's no question. But uh, do you agree that this is not a situation like Fenwick's? Well, 
you do need a second witness here in its some form of corroboration. But not a witness, to, not an eyewitness to the act. Well, the, there's a split in the Texas courts as to whether you need an eyewitness. Two courts suggest you need an eyewitness and uh, three courts. I thought it was enough if there was an outcry. It was corroboration or outcry. Yes. If she'd simply told her mother earlier, that would have been it. Yes, but even that requires a second witness. It requires the second witness to come in and confirm that the outcry oh, has been no made. No question. Any, I mean, every, any evidence depends ultimately on a witness to get right. the evidence. Yeah. So under the old rule, the testimony of KM was not sufficient by itself. You needed at least somebody else to come in and corroborate whatever corroboration means under Texas yeah. law or to come in and testify that there was a timely outcry. What about, what about the corroboration here uh, that the, the defendant himself passed that note to his wife, adultery with KM? Well, uh, we believe the corroboration issue for purposes of this court has been waived. As we pointed out in our reply brief, corroboration was not argued below by the state of Texas, and Carter versus Kentucky would indicate that where an argument has not been raised below, the respondent cannot raise it here. It was also not raised in opposition to the uh, petition for well, certiorari. Well, what about as a matter of Texas law, though, since we're talking about the nature of this thing? Uh, would that uh, — is there a Texas case that says that sort of corroboration is not sufficient? Well, I think — oh, Can you answer that question, yes or no? There are two Texas cases that indicate eyewitness corroboration is required. So if those were the Texas rule, that would not be sufficient. Well, well, Under but, other Texas but cases, But presumably the be. defendant is an eyewitness. Presumably the defendant is an eyewitness. And he has said adultery with KM. Why isn't that good enough? Well, I think the principal reason it's not good enough is because the issue was not waived below. And well, I but I, as I say, I'm not, I'm not talking about what's before us in this particular ex post facto issue, but I'm trying to get some feel for exactly what the Texas statute requires. It, it might well be good enough. There is a split in the Texas courts, and that particular situation has not been presented. It, and it, in addition, there were many counts alleged here, and it, that, that note wouldn't necessarily go to these four counts, as opposed to the more recent counts, uh, which do not fall within the ex post facto challenge. Mr. Bernstein, would this argument you're making carry over to a case where the evidentiary rule that was changed was the rule that a defendant could bring up the victim's past sexual conduct? No, it would not, Your Honor. Uh, Hopped has made clear, as did Collins in a footnote, that mere changes in evidentiary rules uh, do not fall within Calder's fourth category. That would not, the situation you described, would not be a change in a sufficiency of the evidence rule. It would just be a change in, in, in what evidence uh, could be admitted. It, it would also be like Thompson versus Missouri in that regard, which admitted uh, documents which, had not previ- which would not have been authenticatable under the prior rule. Uh, admittedly, the distinction here is a fine one between sufficiency of the evidence on the one hand, which is substantive, which we submit cannot be changed retroactively, and evidentiary rules on the other hand. But it is a distinction recognized in every pertinent body of the law. It's recognized in Erie, where sufficiency of the evidence is substantive, but evidentiary rules themselves are only procedural. It's recognized in conflicts of law, and I would refer the Court to the restatement second of conflicts of law, section 133 and 134, comments B to each, where sufficiency of the evidence is recognized as substantive. And it's rec- this distinction between sufficiency of the evidence and evidence is also recognized in uh, double jeopardy law in this Court's leading opinion in Lockhart versus Nelson. This Court has never suggested in either the civil or the criminal context, context that sufficiency of the evidence is procedural and not substantive. And it is substantive because it is intertwined, inextricably intertwined, with the very question of guilt. But when you say, as you say, the, the line is very difficult to draw. How about the case where you know, someone is tried for treason and only one witness testifies to an overt act? Is that an evidentiary rule or a failure of the case for sufficiency of the evidence? Well, the Fenwick's defenders, and we submitted yesterday a lodging of relevant pages of the debate in Fenwick's case, specifically took the position that a change in the required number of witnesses was a substantive change equivalent to 
a change in the offense itself and specifically said that such a change in the minimum amount of proof was an ex post facto change. Essentially, it's interesting, 303 years later, we're having the same argument here that the English Parliament had in 1696 because the arguments raised by my colleagues from Texas that a change in the, in the, max, in the minimum uh, amount of proof uh, is simply procedural and simply a matter of form were made by Fenwick's accusers. But Fenwick's case was very much of a bill of attainder, was it not? No, I think it was a bill of attainder, but it was — They were out to get him. They weren't changing the general law. It was a bill of attainder, but it was also an ex post facto situation. And the debates that we provided the Court with yesterday in the lodging make that clear, uh, particularly on pages 255 and 256, 262 — 282 and 283, 312 and 320. They say the defenders of Fenwick, the accusers of Fenwick, took the state of Texas's position. But the defenders of Fenwick, who I think the Court of History has sided with and who certainly uh, Calder and uh, Justice Story sided with in his commentaries on the Constitution, the defenders of Fenwick said changing the minimum sufficiency of the evidence is a substantive change and is equivalent to making a new crime is equivalent to changing the offense. And that makes sense from a policy reason as well, because one of the key policies of the ex post facto clause is to keep the legislature out of the business of adjudication. And there's nothing that the legislature could do to more put its thumb on the scale than to change the standard for determining guilt. And I would cite the Court to one other case in Miller versus Florida, The issue there was the standard for determining sentence. The defendant in that case could have gotten the exact same sentence under the old statute. The only thing that changed was the legislature put its thumb on the scale and said, we're going to make it easier to give the longer sentence. But the longer sentence — all of these cases seem to me quite far afield from what we're dealing with here. What the Texas law did was to make a witness fully competent who hadn't been fully competent before. You needed something more. And in the old days, you know, there were all kinds of rules uh, ranking witnesses in terms of their thought of credibility, like two Jews equal one Christian. That seems to me that that's that's the kind of rule we're dealing with here. This 14-year-old was regarded as not a fully competent witness, and then the legislature recognizes that she is a fully competent witness. Well, but the same would have been true in Fenwick's case. The single witness was recognized as not fully competent by himself to sustain a conviction. And, and I agree with you, Justice Ginsburg. The old law may well have been outmoded, stereotypical, and a very bad policy choice. But the point is it was wrong as a substantive policy choice. And what ex post facto law teaches is when a legislature changes its substantive policy choices, it must change them uh, prospectively and not retrospectively. But I don't see how you can call it substantive if it's just going to witness competency. It's just labeling something rather than thinking through what it really is. I think it is more than labeling because it is the rule here was the rule on adjudication of guilt. It was the standard. To quote the statute, a conviction is not supportable, absent both the victim testifying and either corroboration or outcry. That's different than an evidentiary rule. If it were just an evidentiary rule and there were an error on appeal, you would have a retrial. Under this rule, if there is insufficient evidence because there was no corroboration or outcry, you have acquittal, which is another example of a substantive difference well, the, versus the, the, the just a procedural is, difference. It's set out in the Texas uh, courts. I mean, it doesn't read quite the way you say. It says a conviction under such a is is supportable right. on the un- right. Is supportable only if it doesn't say only if. Well, it says if the victim informed any person. Well, I, I'm simply suggesting that if you're going to quote a statute, you should probably do it in hike verba. Absolutely, Your Honor. The statute says a conviction is supportable on the uncorroborated testimony of the victim of the sexual offense if the victim informed any other person within six months. I would submit that that is substantively indistinguishable from a statute that says uh, um, that a conviction is supportable only if there's corroboration or outcry, in addition to the uh, victim testifying. 
And to return to the judicial function versus legislative function. Well, let me ask a question about this witness comment. As I understand it, this witness was competent before. The sure. witness could testify. Absolutely. If, if this, under the old statute, if there had been a second witness ready to testify, just like in Fenwick's case, and that witness got waylaid or didn't make it to the court, the court wouldn't say, well, this witness is incompetent. The court would say we have insufficient evidence and we must dismiss. What, what is the law in Texas in respect to a person who's not a minor, in, uh, 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 accused, a person accused of a crime involving a victim who's not a minor? There is still a corroboration or outcry requirement. So the, the, those that's why I, I don't know whether to think about this as a witness, uh, as a, a witness qualification case, in which case I guess you'd have a hard time, uh, or to think of it as a change in the amount of proof case, which is what you're arguing. It's so looking at it in context, I don't know what to make of the context. It's certainly an odd system that says where the child is the victim, you can go on uncorroborated testimony. Right. But where an adult is the victim, you need either corroboration or outcry. Right. I mean, is there any rationale for that? I, I think there is no competency rationale for that. The notion that a five-year-old is more competent than a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old makes no sense. So the statute clearly is not a competency statute. It is a statute about when, do, when does the legislature have sufficient confidence that there is minimally sufficient evidence to convict someone. The In text- other words, you're saying that, is this right, that with an adult who's a victim, we think for whatever set of circumstances, whether right or wrong, and they may be wrong, in my opinion, or yours or somebody else's and right and theirs, but whether right or wrong, the victim's here, we're going to need special extra evidence. But where it's a victim at stake who's a child, it's so serious we don't need that special extra evidence. Um, when the when the victim under the current statute is below I mean, that's that's the way you want me to look at this statute eighteen yes and there are many states that have eliminated corroboration for victims over eighteen mm-hmm. I mean the but I, I think that it's also important to remember that Calder's fourth category is a bright line rule I think the the greatest value of the four colder categories is that they are bright line rules. Well, but we've already seen that this is scarcely a bright line rule, since uh, both from the bench and and I think your response, it's very difficult to draw the line you're talking about. I don't think it is difficult to draw the line. I think, as I mentioned in those four or five areas of law, all those areas have treated sufficiency of the evidence as substantive and evidentiary rules only, well, such as yes, Justice Ginsburg's example, the, 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 as procedural. The, the, the trick is in the classification. Right. Well, even Texas. I mean, uh, Justice O'Connor suggests that you, you don't just get where you want to go by labeling. Well, even Texas, in their brief, uh, said at page 18, I believe, that this is a sufficiency of the evidence rule. And it has all the characteristics of a sufficiency of the evidence rule. Failure to satisfy the rule requires acquittal. Not a new trial. Failure to satisfy an evidentiary rule requires a new trial. Failure to satisfy sufficiency of the evidence rule requires acquittal. Um, Mr. Bernstein, would you clarify one thing? You said something about 18 was the dividing line, but this child was, wasn't she 14? Under the new statute, 18 is the dividing line. Under the old statute. She wasn't trusted uh, as, isn't that basically what it is? If it's a child of five, we think that she couldn't possibly have consented or wanted this. And when 14 was, Texas once thought was the age at which the victim becomes incredible. Under the old statute, uh, but even now under the new statute, the younger the victim is, the, the more power that one witness's testimony has. Let, let, let's go in again to your statement about the difference between the new trial and, and the uh, judge judgment of acquittal. Uh, in, in what cases do you say that the evident, an evidentiary rule would require simply a new trial, where, where the, there was not, the, the witness was incompetent? Well, th- that's the rule in Texas, that an evidentiary error uh, only requires a new trial and not an acquittal. And it's also the rule. Suppose, in, suppose in Texas you had a, 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 this second witness who testifies, but then on appeal that testimony is stricken because of hearsay or something like that. Uh, no confrontation. A new trial then? or Well, actually, this Court has a double jeopardy precedent exactly on point, Lockhart versus Nelson, which holds that in that circumstance, 
where there is an evidentiary error and the remainder of the evidence is by itself insufficient, insufficient new trial. Not, not, it, it does not violate double jeopardy to have a new trial in that circumstance. Well, so, so then doesn't that indicate that this could be something other than uh, a substantive rule? No, because under Texas law, and we cite these cases uh, in our brief, both our opening brief and our reply brief, under the, both the old statute and the new statute, when it's not satisfied, the, the required remedy is acquittal, and the required remedy on appeal when it's ruled it's not satisfied is remand for judgment of acquittal. So it is not treated as merely an evidentiary error under Texas law. They don't send it back and say, now let's see if you can come up with your second witness. What are we uh, dealing with here? This, this, uh, your client, I guess, was convicted of several counts? Yes, 13. And we're dealing here with only some of those counts? Only four of those counts. Some of those counts, some of the other nine counts were before uh, uh, the victim had an age under 14 and so did not need corroboration or outcry under, other, under either statute, and some of the later counts are after the statutory change. There may be an argument on remand about whether overruling the four counts here has some spillover effect on those counts, but that was not sought by the petition, and that's not before the Court. And the underlying goal of the ex post facto clause, you think, is served by adopting your position here? I, I think three purposes. If so, how? Well, I, I think, as, as I said, the ex post facto jurisprudence of this Court has always recognized this substantive versus procedure distinction. I won't belabor that. The second no, — I, may, may I interrupt? It, it seems to me in Collins we said that, that that distinction is not very useful, didn't we? I, I think Collins was addressing something else. A, a number of earlier cases had suggested that procedural rules — if they provided substantial protection, in other words, a lot of protection, if they helped a lot, if they worked a lot to the advantage of the defendant, were not covered by the ex post facto clause. But the Court in Collins, I believe, at page 45, made clear that substantive rules — I realize the two words are close, substantive and substantial are, — are, are in a different category than procedural rules that help a lot. Uh, I interrupted you when you were answering Justice O'Connor's question. Yes. Uh, in addition to the substantive versus procedure distinction, which I think is important. Well, I, I was really hoping you'd address the underlying goals of the clause. Sure. What are we trying to protect people from? I think we are trying, in this case, <laughs> to protect the system from the legislature putting its thumb on the ultimate <laughs> adjudication of guilt for past conduct. Obviously, they can put their thumb on the adjudication of guilt prospectively. They can well, this isn't a very sympathetic case with somebody who's been abusing his stepdaughter. This is uh, so we're concerned because he should have known that she was uh, over 14? This is a very uh, unsympathetic case, I would agree, based on the findings below. But the ex post facto jurisprudence of this Court indicates it doesn't matter how unsympathetic the case is. It doesn't matter how bad the old rule was. Both Story and Harlan, in quotes we have in our brief, say that. If you recognize a bad crime or a bad man or a bad old rule exception to the ex post facto clause, you might as well rip the clause out of the Constitution, because the legislature always believes it's changing a bad rule for a good rule. And the legislature always believes that it's substantive change. Mr. Bernstein, if the one of the prime bases, I think you would agree, with the ex post facto bar, is it's not fair to have a crime be one thing when the defendant commits it and another when he's subject to conviction. Now, here, there can't be any question about fair warning or notice to the defendant. He couldn't have anticipated that the child wasn't going to tell her mother. It is correct, Your Honor, that one of the important concerns is reliance, and it is also correct that we do not uh, raise a reliance argument. But as Miller versus Florida and Weaver make clear, reliance is not the only concern. This concern about separation of legislative and judicial functions is cited in both Miller versus Florida and uh, Weaver versus Graham, and it, it traces actually back to uh, Calder. Uh, which mentions on page 389 this concern, that we do not want legislatures changing the ultimate standard 
for adjudicating guilt for past offenses any more than we wanted legislatures changing the ultimate standard for determining the sentence in Miller versus Florida for but past here, offenses. Here, Mr. Bernstein, unlike the Fenwick case where they wanted to get this person, there's no indication that any that the legislature was doing anything but updating its rules of evidence, bringing them in line with the more modern trend. I would agree, Your Honor, there's no indication that they wanted to get Carmel, but I believe that the clause and the purpose of the clause, especially uh, uh, as rephrased by Justice Story, it goes to a change in a rule of sufficiency of the evidence, that, it, that Category 4 is not limited to attainder cases. And I think the citations that we gave to Fenwick's debates, to the debates in Fenwick's case, show that Fenwick's defenders made the additional argument that Chase was right to view that as an ex post facto case. They made the additional argument that the change in the rule itself, separate and apart from the attainder considerations, was uh, a legislative practice uh, that should not happen, and we think that was adopted into uh, the Constitution. Does it matter that in the, in the attainder or in the treason cases, the individual who commits his treasonous act very carefully in front of one witness only knows that he has a defense, whereas here, as was pointed out a moment ago, uh, when these acts are committed, uh, the, the putative defendant has no way whatsoever of knowing but uh, Fenwick whether there is going to be a defense. But Fenwick didn't know that he had a defense. He apparently committed his treasonous act in front of two witnesses. He just caused the second witness to abscond. In fact, in Fenwick, they had an out-of-court declaration from the second witness. No, but the, the, I suppose the core of the, of the old treason rule did, in fact, give a defense uh, and give a person a right to rely defensively upon his care uh, in, in committing his arguably treasonous act uh, or making the treasonous statement in front of one person only, whereas there's, there's no comparable argument that can be made here. I, I don't think it went to reliance, and there's no indication of a reliance interest in the debates in Parliament in Fenwick's case. I think it went to a legislative determination that this is such a serious offense that we need a heightened amount of evidence. Now, as I say, legislatures can change that determination, but Calder's fourth, fourth category and the debates in Fenwick and Justice Story would indicate that they can't change it retroactively. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance. Very of well, time. Mr. Bernstein. Uh, General Cornyn, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The State of Texas respectfully submits that this Court cannot reverse Carmel's convictions at issue here today, consistent with Collins versus Youngblood, which this Court decided just nine years ago. As the Court noted in Collins, the language in Category 4 of the Calder formulation uh, by Justice Chase was not intended to prohibit application of new evidentiary rules in trials for crimes committed before the changes, citing this Court's decision in uh, Hopped uh, and in Thompson versus Missouri. Indeed, in 1925, when this Court was confronted in Bazell with a ex post facto case, it omitted entirely the uh, fourth category in the Calder formulation. Well, it depends on what you mean by evidentiary rules. And, and, and the normal meaning, I think, is, is what evidence is admissible and what isn't admissible. Uh, this is not that kind of a case. Uh, this evidence was admissible before and it was admissible after. It, it, it goes to, you know, the sufficiency of the evidence. I wouldn't normally call that an evidentiary rule. Justice Scalia, I believe this is uh, uh, equivalent to the uh, Court's decision in Hopped, where previously the testimony of convicted felons was not permitted to support a conviction, and then uh, later that uh, that was taken away. Well, so it was — That is an evidentiary rule. The, the evidence couldn't come in before, and it could come in afterwards. Uh, it's a rule pertaining to the exclusion or admission of evidence. But it wasn't a rule as to how much evidence you need to convict of the crime. Isn't that a basic distinction? As I understand this Court's, this court's uh, writings, the only sufficiency rule that's of constitutional dimension would be uh, the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, Here, you, do you agree with Mr. Bernstein that under Texas law, under the previous statutory regime, uh, that if there was a conviction uh, without the extra, without the second witness, it then goes up as reversed for that reason, there can be no new trial? 
It would uh, result in an acquittal. Yes, sir, I do agree with that. Well, that does indicate it's a sufficiency evidence problem uh, under Texas law, at least. Well, we would suggest that you can — the same problem, I think, that, that — uh, that counsel and I and the court perhaps are struggling with over whether this is a competency or a sufficiency uh, rule is the same problem the court has had and, and uh, counsel have had over the years dealing with whether mere procedural changes are uh, accepted from the ex post facto But, but does, doesn't his argument that uh, a reversal uh, for want of the required witness uh, commands an acquittal show that under Texas law at least — this is a, a sufficiency of, of the evidence problem. We do believe it is a sufficiency rule, but not one of constitutional significance. What, what is the difference? I mean, suppose that uh, — it's hard to imagine an example, but uh, suppose a state had a rule that in certain cases you had to have proof stronger than a reasonable doubt, double reasonable doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then one day they changed it and made it just ordinary reasonable doubt. Would that invoke ex post facto, in your opinion? I don't believe so, Your Honor. I so you think there is no such thing as sufficiency? The only uh, — Under the ex post facto. Under the ex post You're saying even if it has to do with sufficiency completely and only, we believe uh, that it's still the ex post. Why not? Excuse me. Uh, Justice Pryor, we believe that's now pro- uh, th- that sort of protection provided to an accused in a criminal case is now provided under the Due Process Clause under this Court's decision in Ray uh, Winship that uh, the uh, assuring a criminal defendant of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the uh, constitutional standard. In the treason case? I I have your answer to that. I I understand it. Thank you. What what, what about the treason case? In uh, in the case of Sir John Fenwick? Well, no, just imagine that instead a statute says you have to have two witnesses, then they change it and say you don't have to have two witnesses. We believe that would be a a sufficiency uh, uh, rule. And really no different than if the court, um, excuse me, the legislature decided to change the rules uh, provide, uh, allowing the admission of hearsay, certain kinds of hearsay evidence, certainly uh, under a previous rule that would exclude the, that evidence uh, uh, if the legislature or the court, and depending on the jurisdiction, decided to promulgate a new rule which allowed the admission of what heretofore had been hearsay evidence, which would uh, General Barnard, can, could you comment on this aspect? This is, this is a very interesting and tricky case, but one of the things that seems to run through the cases your opponent relies on is that they are crime-specific to the particular crime at issue, whereas the rules you, you rely on seem to be changes in the rule that apply across the board, like all convicted felons can testify and ch- changes in hearsay. Do you think that's a possible valid distinction? Uh, no, Justice Stevens, I don't believe that that is uh, a valid distinction in the sense that uh, one would be prohibited and one would be allowed. We believe all uh, changes in the rules of evidence uh, would be allowed, as this Court said in Collins. Indeed, although I'm not aware this Court has ever had occasion to decide under an ex post facto challenge the specific validity of uh, Federal Rule 412, uh, the Federal Rape Shield, Rule uh, 413, allowing for evidence of similar crimes in sexual assault cases, and Rule 414, providing for evidence of similar crimes in child molestation cases, uh, we think that those kinds of rules, which have been indeed upheld as against an ex post facto challenge by lower courts, uh, would certainly be permitted under uh, uh, this Court's rulings, and particularly under the, uh, under the Collins uh, Well, decision. General Cornyn, you, you appear, at least, to be acknowledging that you think in this case uh, the legal change that was made affected the sufficiency of the evidence that was required. You, you go that far. Well, only in the sense — Yes. Uh, you have acknowledged that, I think, here in I, court I, yes, in your, your brief. Yes, Your Honor. But you go on to say, but it's not constitutionally significant. That's correct. Well, what kind of a line should we draw then? How do we know when it's constitutionally significant, if that's the line? Uh, your opponent says the line is whether it's an evidentiary change or a sufficiency of the evidence change. We believe and there's some justification in our jurisprudence for that line. But you apparently want us to draw a different one. And what is it? We believe in, in either of those cases, whether you uh, label it a sufficiency uh, of the evidence question or in a competency question, as the court decided in Hopp, that they would not violate those kinds of changes would not violate 
the ex post facto clause. Um, as a matter of fact, this Court has never um, struck down a legislative enactment as violative of the fourth category in uh, Justice Chase's Calder formulation. And, in fact, over the years, as the, the Court has had occasion to rule in ex post facto cases, it has, as I said in Bazell, omitted the fourth category entirely in 1925. And then, of course, in this Court's decision in Collins, uh, not only um, uh, made the ex post facto clause's coverage more succinct as covering only alterations in the definition of crime or in the increases in punishment, but explicitly said that changes in the rules of evidence uh, should not um, be uh, uh, banned by the ex post facto clause. General Cornum, you, you cited Bazal twice, and it did not mention the fourth category, but it did say that changes in rules of evidence can be applied retroactively if they, and this is the Court's words, operate only in limited an unsubstantial manner to defendants' disadvantage. And here one couldn't say that about this rule because it was a difference between enough evidence to convict and not enough evidence to convict. Well, we do believe, Your, Your Honor, Justice Ginsburg, that this did operate in a, in a, in a um, general um, um, manner that was uh, permitted under the ex post facto clause. None of the core concerns that animated the Founders' adoption of the ex post facto clauses that applies to the states. May I call your attention to one other thought, uh, uh, General Cornyn? You, you stressed the fact that some of our opinions just kind of ignored the fourth category in, in uh, Calder. But in uh, Collins itself, the Court concludes the holding in Quinn can only be justified if the ex post facto clause is thought to include not merely the Calder categories, but any change which alters the situation to a party's disadvantage. Doesn't that suggest that all four Calder categories had vitality? Justice Stevens, we believe that the fact that the Court overruled uh, Kring and Collins, as it did uh, Thompson versus Utah, represents a contraction, or at least if not a contraction, a more succinct statement of the coverage of the ex post facto clause, which we believe is more faithful to the original understanding of the framers, as the Court stated in, in Bazell. None of the core concerns which animated the Founders' uh, adoption uh, with ex post facto lawmaking are present in this particular What are those case. core concerns? I mean, let, let's take the third category, uh, every law that changes the punishment and inflicts a greater punishment than the law annexed to the crime. There's no reliance interest there. The person, when he, when he did the deed, knew it was wrong, knew it was unlawful, knew it, knew it, it, it was punishable. And just increasing the, the penalty, sir, I, I think that's an insignificant reliance interest that he didn't expect to be punished that much. Certainly I, we wouldn't take I would agree, Justice Scalia, that that uh, would not uh, serve a, a reliance interest, but it would um, it would concern the um, uh, vindictive lawmaking. Well, what, 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 what if the legislature changed the penalty from a maximum of one year to a maximum of 20 years? Well, I believe that would be uh, prohibited under. Well, but would you say that the, there was some reliance interest that someone might go out and fit, commit a crime? I'm willing to serve a year for it, but I'm not willing to serve 20 years for it? Per perhaps, Your Honor. It's hard to imagine, but uh, perhaps. Uh, certainly the elements of the crime, as defined by the legislature and as uh, is present here, have not changed. The facts uh, required for the prosecutor to prove in order to obtain a conviction were exactly the same. The only requirement of the Texas, uh, uh, of the Texas statute uh, under some circumstances is that there be um, uh, corroboration. And, of course, out of the 15 yes. counts of the indictment upon which Mr. Carmel was convicted, we're talking about four here, which occurred during a period of time after she uh, turned 14. If, if we assume in this case, if, if we take it as a beginning point, and you may argue about it, but if we take it as a beginning point, that it is an ex post facto law to lessen the government's burden of proof, do you lose? Um, I do not. I do not believe uh, that we lose under those circumstances. Indeed, lower courts have certainly confronted that uh, in dealing with, for example, the rape shield laws and in interpreting this court's decisions in Hop, uh, Thompson versus Missouri have said uh, that that is not an ex post facto violation. 
under, of course, the Court's decision in Hopp, where uh, previously uh, convicted felons could not testify and then could testify, uh, that sort of uh, more ready admission of evidence to support uh, a conviction was uh, found. Uh, Again, from a policy standpoint of trying to understand the purposes of the ex post facto clause, it, it seems to me that if the burden of proof that the government must meet cannot be lessened, uh, that this falls under that, that same rationale. I believe, uh, Justice Kennedy, it really relates to the mode of trial and the sort of uh, um, practices that this Court has typically called procedural. Uh, that is, what evidence is going to be admitted, the sort of changes that the Court has certainly approved, which is labeled procedural, which have operated to the distinct disadvantage of criminal defendants in uh, Daubert in 19. Uh, 90, 1977, involving a change in the death sentencing procedures, um, Mallet versus North Carolina, where the court uh, upheld a change in the law which permitted the state to appeal, uh, which it had not been uh, had that right previously. Of course, in Bazell, uh, where uh, uh, felons were required to be tried separately and then and thereafter were allowed to be tried jointly. Um, all of those, all of these cases, Collins, uh, which allows the appellate court to reform an unauthorized verdict, all of those have operated to the distinct disadvantage of the defendant, but have been uh, labeled procedural rules which affect the mode of the proceedings and do not go to the core concerns uh, that the framers sought to protect under the ex post facto clause. Your basic point in answer to Justice Kennedy is you say a, a, a rule of law that made it tougher to convict somebody by raising the burden of proof, if we could imagine such a thing, uh, would not fall within the ex post facto clause. I believe that's correct. Right, but then if that — if we don't accept that, then do you lose uh, on the ground that this — is that — in other words, I'm trying to see if that's the basic issue. Uh, if, 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 if it is the case, there could be some substantive rule, you know, of amount of proof. It would fall within the uh, ex post facto clause, then would you lose on the ground that, you know, as they argue, this is such a case, this is a case involving the amount of evidence, etc.? I don't believe we would lose in that, in that case. I think this is really more, and if I understand Justice Kennedy's question, um, the question is whether if, if the change in the rule allows more evidence to be admitted than had heretofore been allowed, this Court has already answered that question. In um, certainly in the Hop case and in Thompson versus Missouri, where it says the fact that more evidence is allowed, or conversely in the rape shield context, lower courts have said the fact that less evidence is allowed in terms of uh, questioning the reputation of a um, of a complaining witness. But this isn't a question of more evidence being allowed. It's a question of how much evidence is required for a conviction. It's a quite different question. Justice Scalia, I, I, um, I, I don't see the difference between uh, what we're talking about here and, say, a change in the um, hearsay rules, such as I mentioned earlier, which would exclude certain testimony that would be, have been required well, for conviction, which after The difference is that in one, you get exactly the same evidence in two separate trials, one conducted before the stat, one, one you get an acquittal, the other you get a conviction. So it's really not just an evidentiary rule. Well, we... Justice Stevens, we disagree with, uh, with uh, the Amicus uh, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, which suggests the fact that uh, it's case dispositive uh, in the sense that in one case you get an acquittal, one you get a, a, a conviction. No, but the point is it's case dispositive on the same evidence, whereas all these other cases you say, well, the, the difference in the rule let more evidence in or kept some evidence out. But here you get exactly the same evidence in two cases, and one you get an acquittal and one a, one a, a, a conviction. Perhaps a more uh, significant distinction uh, that I should make is the fact that under Texas law, corroboration need not duplicate uh, the uh, testimony with regard to the elegant elements of the crime, but only tend to connect uh, the accused with the crime. So it need not, in that sense, uh, be um, more evidence from the standpoint of uh, bolstering the testimony, but really, I think, relates to the historical skepticism with which the testimony of a, uh, a child sex abuse victim has been, uh, has been considered. What, what do you make of the fact that uh, if there is a conviction 
uh, without the adequate amount of evidence as required by the statute, on appeal, that conviction will not only be set aside for a new trial, but the conviction will be reversed and the defendant will be released as, as having been tried and found not guilty. Whereas if there's just an evidentiary mistake in Texas as elsewhere, if there's been a conviction, the defendant can be retried again. Is, is, is that a correct uh, statement of Texas law? I, be, I believe it is. And well, that seems to me to indicate a, a, a really a, a significant difference between rules of evidence and, and the rule that's at issue here. It could only, Justice Scalia, represent some anomaly of, uh, under, of Texas law and some difference in treatment of the um, lack of evidence uh, under Texas law as opposed to uh, other jurisdictions. Well, let, let, let's assume that the, the neighboring jurisdiction, New Mexico, treats it as, as procedural. I, I, I suppose that we could have a federal ex post facto rule that is different between the two states. We accept the state's characterization of its own law. I, I, or, or is that incorrect? Well, no, the, our characterization of this law is that it, uh, that it is procedural. It is an evidentiary rule change and does not um, uh, violate the ex post facto clause. And so to the extent the court would defer to the interpretation of the state insofar as the, the coverage of its rule, then, um, then we would suggest that uh, the conviction should be upheld. If there are no more questions, for all these reasons, we would ask that the convictions uh, be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, General Conan. Uh, Ms. Brinkman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. A law such as Article 3807 that eliminates a requirement of victim corroboration does not violate the ex post facto clause because it does not expand the definition of the crime and does not increase the punishment. The label substantive here that petitioner attempts to place on the law is not useful. It's really beside the point. His emphasis on the fact that this defendant would have been entitled to an acquittal is not dispositive. In Collins, the court overruled Kring versus Missouri, and that was exactly the situation in that case. A plea to a second-degree um, murder conviction stood as a complete acquittal to a first-degree murder prosecution. And under the um, first rule, in effect, the um, defendant would have been able to go back and <clears throat> be acquitted of first-degree murder, yet that law was changed. And originally, the court in Kring held that that violated the ex post facto to apply it. But in Collins, the court overruled that, and that but would I, be I proper. But I Mr. Bernstein's point in, in, in our discussion in, in this context is just to show that this is a sufficiency of the, of the evidence rule. And if you accept that, uh, then does uh, the petitioner prevail here? No. I have to say I think that label is also unuseful. Unfortunately, um, Justice Kennedy, this change in the law only went to one manner of um, obtaining a conviction here. It was only in cases in which victims testified. The state of Texas could still prosecute people for um, um, under the aggravated sexual assault through other evidence when victims didn't testify. This just went to, I think as the Attorney General of Texas properly stated, a um, the history of a lack of confidence in the credibility of these witnesses. And there were two ways in which sufficient credibility could have been um, introduced to permit admissibility for this testimony to go to the jury. One was outcry and one was corroboration. And to look at both of those under state laws are very instructive. The outcry evidence, for example, if um, the uh, child had told her mother within six months or a year, depending on which law applied, would come before the jury not for the truth of the matter asserted. It was excluded as hearsay for that purpose. It only came in as evidence that she told someone. So that has nothing to do with the sufficiency of the evidence. It has to do with whether whether the defendant could be convicted or not. So did Kring, Your Honor. Without that evidence, he couldn't be convicted. New law says that without that evidence, he can be convicted. I mean, how is that any different from changing the, or or maybe you think that that's okay, too, changing the burden of proof from uh, from one standard to another? So the government now does not have to prove quite as much in in order to uh, get a conviction. Would would that be covered by... uh, no, it would not. We don't believe that would be an ex post facto violation. It wouldn't. No. The ex post facto clause is aimed at letting people c- 
conduct their affairs in accordance with law. When a person commits an act that they believe is not criminal, it is fundamentally unfair under the ex post facto clause to then prosecute that person later for that act. That's what the, the clause was aimed at. You reject the third category as well as the fourth. No, Your Honor. Well, the third category uh, makes unlawful uh, uh, under the ex post facto provision increasing the penalty. If so long as you knew it was it was wrong, no harm done in increasing the penalty. And also, it does not increase the punishment. I think that Chief ah, Justice — you're going to just tag that on. But but I mean that gives away your 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 whole. Uh, your whole thesis of oh, we reliance don't so being the fundamental concern. It's not reliance, Your Honor. It's the unfairness of con- prosecuting someone after the fact for, the, for something that was, in fact, not a crime at the time they committed it. That is different. It was a crime in, in Category 3. It was a crime in Category 3. All you're doing is saying, you know, we've thought about it, and that crime is really more serious than we really thought it originally. And he knew it was wrong, and we're going to increase the penalty. I think the point is, as the Chief Justice made before, um, and in his opinion for the Court in Collins, in fact, that the difference between, for example, one year or 20 years is comparable to the um, the. Uh, it only applies when you increase it uh, 20, 20 fold. If you just increased it, uh, you know, a couple of months, it would be okay. Yeah. The difference is, um, Justice Scalia, it changes the legal consequences of the conduct. When that conduct was committed, there were certain legal consequences at that point in time. What the ex post facto clause is aimed at is later changing that and applying it to that person who acted at that point in time. It changes the legal consequences. These rules do not change the legal consequences. It changes the legal consequence of, for innocent people who are around uncorroborated children, they now have to worry about the uncorroborated child's testimony. And I can easily see that as a practical matter affecting how people behave, particularly the innocent ones, in when they're around children without corroboration in certain circumstances. I mean, did you see, so if we're talking about real behavior of people, this may affect more than most. But, Your Honor, the concern of the ex post facto clause was not with um, people relying on something so they could get away with a crime. No, it no, was it's the opposite. I'm thinking of the innocent person. In any crime, there's a shadow area around the crime that people tiptoe around. And you suddenly bring in uncorroborated children's witnesses, and the person operating in, let's say, the shadow area without corroboration could really have his uh, 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 behavior affected Your Honor, in I terms th- of knowing or believing what the criminal consequence would be. Now, maybe it should be. But at least previously, he thought it wasn't, and now he th- it's like treason. Suppose you took away any witness requirements. There you'd have the uncorroborated victim of the treason. You see, that might affect people's behavior. It might have in the 18th century. Your Honor, I think that points that you make um, uh, go to other, perhaps, due process concerns or other provisions of other constitutional provisions. But as Collins made clear, that's not what the ex post facto clause was about. And, in fact, in overruling Thompson versus Utah, the um, court was quite clear to say there may still be some Sixth Amendment problem, although because of the development of Sixth Amendment law, in jury trial size, probably not. But there could be some other constitution, but it's not an ex post facto problem. And Your Honor brings up treason. I just wanted to um, address that since there were several questions earlier. Also, um, there's a, a opinion by the court in 1945, the Kramer case, that I think is the most useful place to look for the treason law under the constitutional provision. And it makes quite clear there that there are three elements for that offense. But the two-witness rule is a procedural means. It talks about how the um, drafters of the Constitution were concerned about making it difficult to establish treason for obvious reasons. And um, one way they did it was by increasing the elements from the common law. They included not just an overt act requirement, but also they added an overt act requirement in addition to the elements of aid and comfort to the enemy and adherence to the enemy. In addition... They established a procedural rule of two witness. But the ex post facto clause would only be violated if the criminal prohibition was later expanded. That is, the elements of the offense were expanded or the punishment was increased. That's what the core concerns of the ex post facto clause were, and we don't believe that they would be violated. In Rickman, do you think that there's anything left to the fourth category at all? Yes, Your Honor. We believe that um, 
looking in historical context, it appears to have been aimed at the um, situation of a bill of attainder, and some bill of attainders or ex post facto clauses may have an ex post facto effect. In Sir John Fenwick's case, that bill of attainder also had an ex post facto effect to the extent that it did not apply the evidentiary rule then in effect at the time of the bill. Well, are you, are you saying that then it's an, an unnecessary category? It's just, it's just overlap? I, I think there's an overlap I mean, between if bill, of the bill of attainder. Why do we need it? Because not all bill of attainders are ex post facto. You can have a bill of attainder. I, I understand it, but you, th- this is a definition of ex post facto, not bill of attainder. So yes. that doesn't work. And if you look at the structure of Justice Chase's opinion, his sole opinion, um, it should be pointed out, he was talking about what the term of ex post facto can mean and talked about how broad it could be and then was trying to narrow it down to give it content. And when he listed the category as laws that would include in that, it would include bill of attainders that were ex post facto. But I'm saying that you don't need that because we know that bill of attainders are, are unlawful. But I think that wasn't what Justice Chase was doing. He wasn't delineating the distinction between the two. He was trying to give content to the ex post facto provision and acknowledging that that was a type of ex post facto law. Ms. Brinkman, one of the problems that I have with the argument that you were making from the, the concept of the core objectives of the clause is in finding a, a clear distinction between an element of an offense, which you, we all agree cannot be changed, uh, and a kind of, let's call it a corroborative requirement. Because when there is a corroborative requirement there, in effect what the law says is you've got to prove something extra. You've got to prove that there is a corroborative witness, and you do that by having the witness come in and say, yes, I saw it, or I saw evidence, or whatnot of it. I'm not sure that there is a clear analytical basis for distinctioning, for distinguishing between an independent corroboration requirement and an element. Am I missing something? Your Honor, may I answer? Yes. Under Texas law, as the Attorney General pointed out, the corroborating evidence is not to the elements of the offense. It only has to be some evidence. To well, that's, that's, that's right, but I don't know that that goes to my question. Whatever the corroboration requirement may be, it seems to function with the same demand that an independently stated element would have. We believe it really goes to the credibility of the witness and the structure of the Texas law really reinforces that, particularly with the outcry requirement. It's going to the credibility of that witness testimony. Thank, that is thank, being thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Brinson, you have three minutes remaining. Justice Souter, the point you were making is exactly the point <clears throat> Fenwick's defenders made in the lodging that we filed yesterday. And they made exactly the point that they viewed changing the minimum evidence as akin to changing the crime itself, as akin to changing the elements. Uh, Justice Stevens, I think you're correct that this rule could be limited to crime-specific minimum uh, standards of evidence. Fenwick itself was a crime-specific treason minimum standard of evidence, and in the, con- in the restatement second conflicts of law, minimum sufficiency of the evidence in the civil area that's for a particular class of cases is described as the clearest case where it's substantive, where, where it would be a more generalized rule in the civil context like, uh, you know, a, a variation of how to say preponderance. That would not necessarily be uh, substantive uh, in that context. Um, uh, Justice Kennedy, the citations for requiring acquittal under Texas law are at uh, page 19, note 10 of our reply brief, although I think the same would be required uh, under the Lockhart case, which is a federal case, 488 U.S. Uh, 3340 um, to 42. Uh, also, Collins itself makes clear that whether a rule is substantive or procedural for purposes of the ex post facto clause is a federal question. Um, that's uh, at page 45 of uh, Collins. Um, Justice Scalia and Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, on this 20 years versus one year on Category 3, go back to Miller. Miller was a case where the defendant could have gotten the exact same sentence. And the change in the standard by which you decided what sentence to give was considered an ex post facto change. This is a change in the standard by which you decide whether the defendant is guilty. 
and I think would even more clearly fit uh, within the ex post facto clause. Justice Ginsburg, um, I think Bizell is even stronger for us than the quotation you read. Bizell also describes as a law different than the uh, joint trial rule in Bizell, a law that would violate the ex post facto clause would be a change in a law concerning, quote, the quantum and kind of proof required to establish guilt and all questions which may be considered by the court and jury in determining guilt or innocence, and that's quoted at pages 9 and 10 of uh, our uh, reply brief. Uh, If there are no further questions. uh, Thank you, Mr. Bernstein. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.